Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Laura Jost, the Managing Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care, and today I'm with Susan Denser, President and CEO of the Network for Excellence in Health Innovation, which just released a roadmap for reinventing healthcare in the United States, called Healthcare Without Walls. Thank you for joining me today, Susan. Great to be with you, Laura. So, Susan, NEHA has undertaken a rather ambitious project by trying to reinvent the U.S. healthcare system. What is the concept of healthcare without walls, and how differently would it work from our current healthcare system? Our notion of healthcare without walls is really to take what we think of as the existing system and, frankly, turn it a, a bit inside out. So, imagine if you would a healthcare system that it came to people meeting them where they are, going about their daily lives in their homes, their workplaces, elsewhere in their communities, rather than always expecting people to go to it, to go to doctor's offices, to go to hospitals, et cetera. Now, as we know, not all healthcare could be delivered that way. There's a lot of healthcare that involves being in very sophisticated facilities, uh, being in an ICU, for example, being in a terrible car accident, you want to go to a trauma center. But there's also an awful lot of healthcare that is about exchanges of information, not about laying on of hands. And exchanges of information, as we know, happen all the time these days virtually. Uh, we're talking on the phone now, for example, rather than being in person and exchanging information accordingly. We do that 80 zillion times a day with all kinds of people around important information about ourselves. So what our concept is, if we had a healthcare system that recognized that there was a whole lot of care that is about exchanges of information that can happen in a way that is much more convenient, much more accessible, and much more in step with other elements of life that, frankly, we all now take for granted, whether it's uh, speaking this way on the phone, whether it's sending money with an app on a mobile phone, whether it's ordering groceries online, we think healthcare could avail itself of a whole lot more of those strategies. And if it did, put the right tools in the hands of the right people in the healthcare workforce, that would be healthcare without walls. And with this technology you're talking about, healthcare has actually been pretty slow to adapt new technologies. You just gave some examples of other industries that are using technology in innovative ways. But why do you think healthcare has been so slow? There are a lot of reasons, uh, and one of the most important ones, of course, is payment. Uh, healthcare tends to follow the money, and if the money were oriented toward healthcare uh, providing care in this way, a lot, lot more of it would be happening. But it's also, frankly, kind of inertia. That's the only thing that really explains why healthcare is so, so far behind other industries. Uh, in terms of the adoption of technology and the movement to more virtual exchanges of information. And some of it is inertia that probably is relatively well-intended. I think there's been a long-standing belief that the only really good care could be provided by people seeing each other face-to-face. -face. That's something we've gotten over in a lot of other aspects of our lives, so it's not clear why we haven't gotten over that in healthcare. Uh, and in fact, the, some of the early studies that we have now on telehealth and other approaches 
seem to suggest that the care is certainly no worse often when it's delivered virtually than it is in person. And frankly, patients like it better. Uh, there was a major study that was uh, funded by PCORI, the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, about care of people with Parkinson's disease that was provided virtually. Now, it was compared in a randomized controlled trial against care that was provided in the usual way of people seeing neurologists. And guess what? The patients who were getting the virtual care preferred preferred the virtual visits because if you're a Parkinson's patient, you've got a lot of trouble mobilizing yourself. Uh, you may be dependent on a caregiver to drive you to an appointment. It might be a long distance if you live in a rural area. And guess what? They vastly prefer to have a virtual visit than undergo all of that. And what would be involved in such an overhaul of our system? Who really needs to buy in? Yes, lots of entities would have to buy in. And it, it starts with payers, both on the public side, payers like Medicare and Medicaid, uh, and payers on the commercial side. And there is a long, uh, sorrowful tale, frankly, of how payers have or have not grappled with telehealth or telemedicine. Medicare, for example, is only now, I would say, taking steps to uh, facilitate payment for health care that, for example, doesn't originate in a healthcare setting. So some aspects of telehealth have been paid for. If a person is in one healthcare setting and having an appointment with somebody in another healthcare setting. But that's really not going to be the ultimate way we're probably going to deliver a lot of telehealth. We're going to deliver telehealth from various settings to people's homes or various healthcare settings into their work sites. And it's only now that Medicare is starting down that road. If you look at Medicaid programs, the different uh, 50 plus state uh, and DC uh, and territorial Medicaid systems have had wildly different ways of paying or not paying for Medicaid, each of them for quite some time. So that's been an issue. And then on top of that, commercial payers have, have only now also begun to embrace, I think in any meaningful way, a lot of payment for telehealth and telemedicine. Part of the reason was that there was a longstanding concern that if you if you make it really easy for people to get health care by staying at home, uh, people would come out of the woodwork and demand lots and lots of care, and soon pairs would find themselves paying for multiple telehealth visits uh, instead of one single patient in-person visit. Uh, that, that has been, a, as I say, a longstanding concern, and there was some evidence to bear that out. But what our report demonstrated is it's all about the payment model. If you pay for telehealth in a fee-for-service structure where there are no incentives to shift care, and there's really just an automatic incentive to add more volume, of course, you're, it's quite possible that you will get uh, added volume by paying for telehealth. If you came up with other payment models that really, in effect, rewarded providers for trying to provide care as efficiently as possible, and if you also valued the perspective of patients, that convenience of care was an important attribute of it, then you would develop payment models that would drive care in the direction of more virtual care without adding excessively to volume. And payers are only now, realistically, on the commercial side, beginning to talk about how to do that. 
Talking about telehealth, what are some of the challenges faced by current models and what early learnings from current telehealth models are going to be useful for implementing the Healthcare Without Walls model? Well, for a lot of providers, uh, it, it takes a little bit of getting used to, to provide care virtually. And it's probably not the case that providers are going to want a steady diet of only providing virtual care. I mean, providers learn things by interacting with patients, and they, they have human feelings like everybody else, and they derive a lot of satisfaction from a person, in-person interactions. But you can think about systems like Kaiser Permanente, for example, which has done a lot to expand its use of virtual healthcare delivery. And, ha and having doctors know that they're going to spend a certain amount of their time every day basically solving patients' problems in the best way possible. So that could be, for any given day, uh, for Kaiser doctors, that could be spending some time on the phone with patients. That could be spending some time in e-visits with patients. It could be emailing patients. Um, a lot of patients in the healthcare system still cannot reliably depend on their doctors to answer or respond to email. Uh, that is take, that's a problem that's off the table at Kaiser. You can, you can choose to email your physician. So uh, having a, 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 a basically any set of providers get used to, first of all, handling a lot of patient inquiries and exchanges that way, not exclusively that way, but having, doing a fair amount of it that way, seeing that their role is not to see patients and bill for uh, multiple visits, but rather seeing their role as helping my patients solve their problems. Uh, getting used to that concept is step number one. And then step number two is often understanding how virtual visits are going to be different from in-person visits because you don't have the person right there in front of you. So if you're a person who's used to touching a patient, you know, you're going to have to think of what you do that's not touching the patient in that way. Uh, or you're going to make arrangements if you uh, need to conclude that the, or if you do conclude that the patient needs to be seen, then you've got to understand that you're going to make a recommendation that the patient be seen and understand why you're doing that and why it's really necessary. I think the third thing that uh, providers in particular have to get used to is the notion of working in virtual teams uh, because just the way care is moving to more team-based in the physical setting, it probably should move to more team-based care in the virtual setting. So it could mean, for example, having a virtual visit with a patient where several of your colleagues, whether it's uh, fellow physicians, nurses, uh, other care providers are also in on that virtual conversation and figuring out how to work with people in that context, how to hand off roles where, when appropriate to do so, uh, how to do follow-up uh, with other members of the care team after a virtual visit. All of that is also a, a new, new element for systems that are going in this direction. And Frankly, we're, we're going to have to learn our way through this collectively as systems take on these new and different roles. 
So you mentioned, obviously, that not every health situation will lend itself to care delivered by technology, for instance, when someone should go to the ICU. But are there certain patients who won't necessarily be able to get care delivered through technology? For instance, I'm thinking that maybe younger patients could be more comfortable with the technology, but older patients who are sicker and more costly may be more likely to benefit from the technology, but they don't necessarily want to use it. Are you looking at things like which patients might want to actually use the technology and who might benefit the most? We spent a lot of time uh, working on that particular issue as we undertook our project. And the fact of the matter is that for most patients, no matter how compromised, if they think they need care uh, and the virtual option is available to them, they tend to want it. I mentioned this Parkinson's study that showed a clear, a clear preference among patients. So these are elderly people with a very disabling condition, uh, often facing great challenges in getting to see specialists. In fact, the, the Medicare data suggests that uh, just over 40% of Medicare patients with Parkinson's ever see a neurologist, ever, okay? So what is that about? It's a question around access to neurologists. Well, so here comes a, an experiment that tests out whether patients like to see neurologists by a by virtual care? And the answer is yes, they do. And they prefer those visits. So I think we, we, we underestimate the degree to which um, elderly people are comfortable using certain technologies. Now, telehealth is a pretty, at its root, is a pretty basic technology. You can have, in effect, the equivalent of a telehealth visit by holding up your smartphone, right, uh, and doing a FaceTime visit with a doctor. Um, do you, is it quite possible that somebody's going to need to turn your phone on for you in certain cases? Yes. Uh, a lot of people have caregivers at home who can perform that function. We call for, in our report, a pretty drastically reconfigured healthcare workforce that could step in and help with this. So, for example, would it be better to have a patient who otherwise cannot get in to see a neurologist would be better to have that person at home having a virtual visit with a neurologist and having a community healthcare worker there right on site to help the patient turn on the smartphone. Of course, that would be better if the patient doesn't have another care provider who, at home who could help with that. So we do think there need to be some other, other interventions uh, here particularly in the realm of the workforce, to make this work. But would it be a better use of everybody's time to have care delivered that way? We argue yes. Better use of the neurologist's time. The neurologist can spend exactly as much time as he or she needs to in the virtual visit. Uh, the neurologist, we're, we're not expecting the neurologist here to make a house call. Uh, to go there physically to uh, the home of a person with Parkinson's, but the community health worker sure could. The community health worker could be the eyes and ears of the neurologist in the home, um, making sure that uh, there aren't uh, rugs that could be slipped on that would result in a fall and take the person with Parkinson's to a hospital. 
those kinds of things. Those are all really important basics of care delivery that our current system doesn't undertake in any meaningful way that would certainly improve the lives of patients overall. And, uh, and asking a piece of technology to be integrated into a system that was thought through carefully like that doesn't seem like such a tall order. In addition to helping with the patient's life, how do you envision this kind of workforce transformation would help or hurt with current burnout issues in healthcare? We think it can only help alleviate some of the burnout. A lot of, you know, burnout is, of course, a multifaceted problem. But one of the issues that clinicians frequently point to is that they do feel as if they're on a treadmill. You have to see specific number of in-person patient visits a day, for example, if you're a primary care doctor or even a specialist in order to make the numbers work. And so that means they are rotating patients fairly quickly in and out of their offices. You know, the notion that we have of sort of long probing, just meaningful one-on-one relationships between uh, care providers and, uh, and patients, you know, for most patients, frankly, that that day is long gone. Uh, they know that the provider is feeling kind of rushed. You know, they're lucky if it's a 12-minute visit, uh, et cetera. So to the degree people feel burned out because the a lot of the soul has gone out of healthcare because of this volume-driven system and the need to deliver on the revenue targets, we th- this could certainly help because... If you think about it, the, the most expensive resource in our healthcare system is labor. If you could just do a better job of adjusting wh- where a physician or clinician allocates his or her time by virtue of making, per, making some of the care able to be provided virtually, you know, there's no reason why, uh, you know, if you take away the sort of the hustle and bustle of rotating patients in and out of offices, having people sit in waiting rooms, having to coordinate the movement of patients around a facility. If you take all of that away and simplify things so that it's really just a question of, you know, calling up, turning on a button and summing up a visit with a patient who's ready there to see you uh, at a distance, it's hard to believe that that couldn't be made simpler than the current situation is. And it, particularly if you're able to put that alongside some additional in-person encounters so that people can feel that sense of, of inter- human interaction that is so important to so many, it, again, it's hard to believe that system wouldn't work better. It's also, frankly, hard to believe that if you took some of the things off the loads of physicians that, that, that they really we don't really need people with MDs to do. Um, we don't really need people with MD degrees to, tell, to counsel people how to turn on or turn off a smartphone. We don't need uh, MD degree people to educate patients on how to properly hold their asthma inhalers. Those kinds of things, we haven't really structured a workforce that devolves a lot of that lower level stuff to other people and pays for it to be done and then frees up the physicians to really do the work that, they, that you do need an MD to, uh, uh, to provide. That's the kind of sort of systematic thinking about using labor resources effectively that, that are, we think a healthcare without walls 
system's demands. Beyond the benefits to the individual patient, what are the benefits to the overall healthcare system and maybe even society in general using the healthcare without walls model? At the most basic level, we think you could drastically expand access in the parts of the U.S. healthcare system where access remains a very serious issue. So let's just take the example of rural areas where it's next to impossible to find uh, and get or get an appointment with a sophisticated specialist if you need to. You've got to get in the car or get on a plane and travel to most likely a major academic medical center. Um, how much sense does that make in this day and age when the same person could go online and order the most sophisticated product possible from Amazon and have it delivered in a couple of days? We think that there is so much opportunity to get access of knowledge, so much of healthcare, again, to go back to what I said earlier, it's not laying on of hands. It's about knowledge and information sharing. So if I'm a patient with a uh, condition in a very rural part of the upper Midwest, um, and why shouldn't I be able to have a telehealth visit with the absolute most sophisticated specialist in that condition who is at an academic medical center a few states away? It's not logistics that keeps that from happening because we know it could happen. Uh, it's all about the rest of the system. It's about the payment not being organized. And in this day and age when that knowledge there's really no reason why that knowledge of how to treat a particular patient needs to be confined to one particular place. And we know already we have lots of models that show that it's, that's not happening in the system. There's an app called Figure One where uh, people can post images, de-identified patient images of, you know, here's a CT scan of patient X. And crowdsource opinions on what that CT scan shows to a million physicians around the world, right? So these things are already happening that we quote the uh, William Gibson, the science fiction writer who, who has said very memorably, the future is here. It's just very unevenly distributed. These things are happening. And if we could package them together so that that person sitting out there in a rural uh, area of the country could have a state-of-the-art telehealth visit with the specialist who has the greatest insight into his or her condition and has knowledge that should know no bounds in this day and age. And, and shame on us for having created the bounds around that knowledge by virtue of the fact that we're not willing to gear up a system that would get that right care to that right patient at the right time and create a payment model and, and take care of the other factors that, that would stand in the way of that occurring. To get something like this Healthcare Without Walls model up and running and functional, where do you envision that the upfront investment is going to come? The, you know, we, as you know, we have a healthcare system that is spending $3.5 trillion a year, accomplishing much less than we hope it will do. So, it is hard for us to imagine that we don't have enough money already in the system to do this. It's just a question of reallocating the dollars. 
uh, and we know we spend a, a certain amount of money already on care that is a very low value and uh, everything else. So we think the primary investment at this point is for health systems to sit down and think about, okay, what is our objective here? Uh, what's the health of our uh, underlying population? What conditions are they suffering from? What do they really need? How do we structure ourselves so that they, we meet their needs as efficiently as possible? And what would it take? And if we just ran some thought experiments that in systems, you know, who, who took a, a population health approach and said, okay, let's, let's start with all of our diabetes patients. We know that the goal is to keep them as healthy as possible and to the degree that we can uh, uh, block the progression of disease to all of the terrible things that we know can be the ultimate outcomes of, of uncontrolled diabetes. So, and how would we do that in a way that made it easiest for them to be adherent to any medication regimens that they want, that they need to be on, to be making the kind of lifestyle changes that we know are critical for them to make, uh, that would fit into their daily lives and not make them have to spend their entire lives thinking of themselves as diabetes patients only, because that's what would, they would have to do with all of the intentional acts that diabetes patients have to undertake every day to maintain their health. And then let's figure out how we would do it. And it's hard to believe that coming out of that, you wouldn't have a, a conclusion B. For our health system, what we should do is start out by buying every one of our diabetes patients, if they don't already have it, a smartphone, giving them access to these apps that we've already studied and certified that will help them in managing their disease, creating a network of community health workers that will call on these patients uh, individually. And, and by call, I don't mean necessarily even a physical visit for them. Maybe it's a phone visit. Maybe it's a FaceTime visit check in with them regularly. And of course, what we would need to do as a health system is make sure that we have a, a payer who recognizes that this is the goal that we want to accomplish. We want to produce better care for our patients. We want to have it cost less. We want to keep them healthier and in the community. So please don't punish us financially for doing the right thing here. Work with us to make this model financially viable. That's the kind of investment that we think needs to be made first and foremost is just setting the goal, realizing that this is within our our uh, our grasp, creating a very new and very different system that is much more patient-centered than anything that anybody has talked about to this point, and then figuring out how to execute on it and lining up the elements of payment, the elements of the workforce, dealing with any regulatory issues that may come up and get in the way, uh, and and just making the commitment to doing it. So, Susan, where can listeners learn more about Nehi and Healthcare Without Walls? So, on our website, nehi.net, we have the executive summary posted, and the uh, full report uh, is available on Amazon.com. If you go to Amazon and just type into the search field "Healthcare Without Walls." Our full report will pop up, and it's available for purchase both as a Kindle copy or as a paperback copy. Great, Susan. Thank you so much for your time today. 
Great to talk with you, Laura. To learn more about Nehi's work and telehealth, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, you can email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.